You are listening to the Sharp End Podcast. My name is Ashley and I'm your hostess for the show. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Designed and developed in the Swiss Alps, Mammut has been making the finest alpine equipment since the 1860s. Driven by a continuous quest for innovation, Mammut's technical clothing, footwear, climbing gear, avalanche safety, and alpine equipment are distinguished by the highest quality, functionality, and safety. They embody Swiss technology and perfection. Mammut, absolute alpine. Thank you to the Colorado Hour Bound School and Sunto for the additional support. My name is Chris Nova. Um, Most of my friends call me Nova, especially like friends in the climbing community. I've been alpine climbing for about six years now. I got my roots in climbing in Colorado where I got addicted to uh, climbing the 14ers there and then ventured off into rock climbing and ice climbing. The last couple of years I lived in Colorado. January of this year, I finally moved out to Seattle, Washington in the Pacific Northwest. So like getting to really do some big mountain climbing here. Yeah. What's your, what's your favorite 14er that you've climbed in Colorado? Uh, I definitely think Little Bear is the one that I've enjoyed the most. And I think that it's partially because of the people I was with when I climbed it. I ended up later falling in love with uh, one of them and we're now part, full-time partners. And just in general, the climb was, was really wonderful. Cool. Okay, and so you made a move out from Colorado to to Seattle, and you've progressed your climbing to bigger mountains, and that's led you to climb the mountain that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, totally. Um, really learning that like the value of, of prominence and how prominence is really the metric that I personally care about as an alpinist um, after moving to the Pacific Northwest, and uh, the most prominent mountain up here, of course, being Mount Rainier. Um, which is where I got into my accident, I think three weeks ago now. So you were climbing Rainier and you had an accident. Um, and what, what day was this? So we, we started our climb off on Saturday, June 23rd. We started off around lunchtime. We began to hike in. It was like a, just like a normal dirt trail. And then we approached the, the Emmons Glacier following like the traditional Emmons route. We're able to like make it up the, the Emmons Glacier and, uh, split off from the the traditional route towards St. Elmo's Ridge, which was maybe five or 600 vertical feet higher than the rest of the route. Put some first tracks in the snow going up the ridge. Were you roped up? uh, We weren't roped up at this point. We were mostly in very shallow snow and in rock at this point. After we made it to the top of the ridge, we glissaded down the backside and that's really where we roped up and started like our first big steps on the, uh, the Winthrop Glacier. Okay, is the, and what's the Winthrop Glacier look like? So we were on like the bottom half of it, so relatively flat for a glacier. The crevasses were very thin, um, not like the big giant crevasses that you know you could park a bus inside that you see on the upper mountain. These were relatively tamer. And at this point, it was more of like transportation. Like we just needed to get some miles across the glacier as we moved over to the true north side of the mountain. How many miles was it gonna be for you to cross the Winthrop? Uh, I'm not sure on the exact mileage, but we were hiking uh, pretty much from lunchtime until almost midnight, going kind of slow. And it was like 
on and off between glacier and uh, rock short roping. So it was a bit of a slog just to get over there without much elevation gain whatsoever. Just just walking around. And it's you and one other person? Uh, yeah, it was me and my climbing partner, Emily. So this was the first time we had gone climbing together. We had been talking about doing a climb together for a matter of months. It hadn't worked out. And so we were pretty pretty pumped about you know getting over here, getting on the north side of the mountain and starting a climb of Liberty Ridge. Have either of you ever climbed Liberty Ridge before? No, I've mostly done the Ingraham direct route, which is on the east side of the mountain, or gone up the, like, the DC route. I was able to free solo the Ingraham route earlier this year, which was a ton of fun. And Emily has done a couple of successful summits of the DC route as well. But this was both of our first time going up the north side on the Liberty Ridge. Exciting. Okay, so you're like, okay, we're going to climb Liberty Ridge. So you're, cl- you're crossing the, the Winthrop Glacier at this point. T- it takes you a few hours. Um, and then what? So at that point, uh, like I said, it was, a, it was about midnight when we finally got to Curtis Ridge, which is where the slog or the approach kind of ended and like the, the actual mountain climbing, uh, in my mind, started the next morning. So we bivvied up on, on the ridge. We didn't really have any good visibility of the actual Liberty Ridge that we were going to be climbing until the next morning. As the sun started to come up, we got Alpenglow, and I remember like looking off on the other side of the Carbon Glacier, which we had to cross in order to get to the to Liberty Ridge. The, the um, what, can you, what was that glacier's name? The Carbon Glacier. The Carbon Glacier, okay. Uh-huh. And uh, and that was like when like the excitement really started. Like it was a beautiful day. We were getting ready to uh, to head up and start doing some, some mountain climbing, some ice climbing, going up Liberty Ridge. And we could see it for the first time. And it, it, you know, the Carbon Glacier looked like it was pretty short for us to get across. So we were definitely like in high spirits that morning. Okay. Not all of our listeners are glacier travelers. So can you describe that a little bit for me? Totally. So like to kind of give you like a play-by-play, we we wrapped down maybe about 100 feet uh, down a, a rock ridge onto the, the glacier. And so you're, we're rappelling down, and, you know, it's very loose, scrambly rock. And then all of a sudden there's this enormous sheet of ice that just comes up right next to the rock. And we crossed a snow bridge, which is just a like a thin layer of snow that connected the rock to the actual glacier. Traversed across that, we were roped up. We were building anchors as we went and basically working as a running belay team. We get onto the glacier, so we're up on the sheets of ice at this point. And I feel like anybody who's done a lot of time on a glacier, one of the first things that that you really think about is, you know, is it soft snow? Are you post-holing? Or is it, do you get like a really nice rock hard ice that you get some really great purchase in? And I, I think we had, you know, kind of like a medium level of snow. So most of our steps were pretty effective. And we're walking across the snow. We have crampons on in our uh, ice axes in our hand, running on a rope team. And as we're making crevasse crossings, we're, we're being careful and building anchors were necessary as we're working our way across the glacier. So we finally made it across the Carbon Glacier. Uh, it took a little bit longer than we were hoping. The crevasses, as we got higher and higher on the mountain, got more and more confusing and challenging to navigate. And so there were a lot of like false starts where we would you know, maybe hike uh, on the glacier like half a mile or so and realize that the, the route we had chosen isn't actually going to go through. So we have to backtrack and then go around. So it's you're, you're navigating this labyrinth of crevasses to try to get to Liberty Ridge. That's got to be frustrating. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, you're gaining elevation, you have a heavy backpack on, um, you're working on a rope team, so you're not moving as quick as you would otherwise. And a lot of frustration when you, you really think like you're on the one that's going to get you there, and then you go, and all of a sudden there's a 20-foot hole in the ground in front of you, you couldn't see it to the last minute, mm-hmm. um, was, was no way to cross it. But ultimately, we, we did make it across the carbon and finally got to Liberty Ridge itself, which was really an exciting moment for us in our day. And at this point, it's already about two, uh, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and we're definitely ready for a break. What's, um, what's the weather like that day? So the weather, well, it was a beautiful day. Absolutely loved. Uh, the weather that day, we felt very lucky. We were able to see the summit, which is rare in the Pacific Northwest. You know, uh, most of the times I've been on Mount Rainier, it's been overcast, it's been cloudy, and then if we're lucky, we get above the clouds and you can finally see the summit. But to be able to see the summit from from so low, you know, seven, 8,000 feet above sea level, it was really inspiring. And it was really drawing us towards towards making this climb and getting ready for the difficult part of the climb, Liberty Ridge proper. Okay, so there you are on Liberty Ridge. You've made it across the carbon. You and Emily are on Liberty Ridge. And then what that what is that like? So um, there's definitely some route finding when we first got to the ridge. I mean, we are excited. We're ready to go. It's been a slog to get up here. And we just really want to get up on top of the ridge. So we, we, we try one way where we do a running belay. And at this point, we kind of move over to more of a, a rock climbing mode. I've got some pro out. Um, we've, we've no longer attached ourselves to either end of the rope. We're actually working on off of an anchor that we built onto some boulders. And we're just trying to kind of go and poke around the ridge and just see, uh, you know, what looks like a good approach to actually get up on the rock above the glacier and start working our way up the rock towards the summit of Mount Rainier. And how high is Mount Rainier? So 14.4. And there's three total summits, one of which is the, the true summit, the tallest, which is Columbia Crest. And our goal was Liberty Cap which is a little bit shorter, but in my mind, a much more beautiful prize that I have never been on before. So we were really excited to get up on Liberty Cap. Okay, so you're attached to the anchor. You're no longer roped up, is that right? At this point, I'm going out and I'm leading, and we are roped up just to the anchor, and that's more of like a fail-safe. We're not actually building like traditional pro as we work around. Most of our movement is horizontal, and again, it's just exploratory at this, trying to just see the ridge and come up with a game plan for how we want to climb the ridge. We decide that the best approach is to climb up some what I would call fifth-class rock for about 100 feet to get on top of the, the ridge line. And once we were on top of the ridge line, our plan was to traverse up the ridge line as high as we could. And then at some point, drop back down onto the other side of the ridge onto the glacier and begin the ice climb up to the, uh, the Liberty Cap summit. So at this point, we decide that it makes sense for me to just free solo up a very short fifth class pitch and then uh, take a fourth class scramble, bringing the rope with me and then building an anchor at the top to belay her and our backpacks up. And this whole process takes maybe two hours of when you include the route finding and actually climbing up and, and getting all the gear up. How, how yeah. heavy are your packs? I'm, I'm going to say probably 45 pounds. We did not have a tent with us, but we do, we were carrying a stove. We each had sleeping bags. We had bivy sacks and warm layers, helmets, ice gear, rock gear. So they were pretty big packs. I had a 45-liter uh, Deuter pack with an ice axe and two ice tools on the back. Okay. Oh, so, you, so you guys bivvied the night before? 
yeah, it was it was up on Curtis Ridge, and yeah, it was it was a good time. We got a couple hours of sleep. We were able to get up early and cook up some water, and and that's when we started our traverse of the Carving Glacier. Right, right. Okay, cool. So what happens next? At this point, you know, I feel very comfortable on ridges with high exposure. I've been climbing in Colorado. I've done some of the great traverses in Colorado. I feel like this ridge line is totally something that I feel comfortable free soloing. So I, I move ahead maybe 30 or 40 feet and act as sort of like an exploratory lead. And Emily is coming up behind me. We're both free soloing at this point. And we're kind of inchworming our way up the ridge where I would go move out, make a couple moves, get to a safer spot, and then Emily would follow. Uh, and we were sort of repeating this pattern as we free soloed up the ridge. And again, it, it wasn't, you know, super technical climbing. There were a few tricky moves, but we were walking most of the time, maybe putting a hand down every so often for balance. And as we're climbing up the ridge, I had committed to a fairly large boulder on a really kind of stable flat spot that I felt very, very comfortable on. And I was just trying to work around this large boulder. Most of the harder climbing had, was out of the way at this point. I, I put some weight on the boulder, and that's where the whole side of Liberty Ridge started to move underneath me. So all of the rock, all of the scree, all of like the, it was, it was like volcanic dirt, but it's just basically like crushed rock from, from the glacier, all started to, uh, to slide underneath me. And that's what kicked off the rock slide that later caused a major accident. Uh, a boulder crushed my hand in between another boulder and... Yeah, anyway, that's where the accident starts. So how big was the boulder that you initially put your weight on that moved? I mean, I would say it was the size of like like a small refrigerator, something that I would like, you would look at this boulder and entertain building a, a rappel anchor off of it. It was it was definitely something that looked very solid. A large portion of it was buried into the, uh, the, like the dirt and rock below. And I think the fatal mistake wasn't necessarily the fact the boulder itself being unstable but just the boulder sitting on a large amount of unstable rock like sh like scree or shale or like crushed volcanic glass there was definitely some scree in there everything from like a fine powder to like baseball sized pieces of rock making up a pretty steep ridge line mm -hmm. and then it starts to move it's it just sort of melts underneath you yeah and so, and that's where I had like that first, like, oh my God, I'm in an accident, something, something's happening. And I felt like I was out of control as the boulder started to move, as the rock around me started to move. And you just heard the sound of like, it almost sounds like, like bowling balls were like rolling down like a staircase. All of these rocks around us start to fall and kicking off rocks further downhill that are, are later following and then topping over uh, a cliff, like the, uh, the ridge line that we were on ultimately cliffed out. Uh, and I kind of knew that as we were walking up there and that's where like my brain started to kind of panic because I knew if I was not able to uh, to stop sliding or to, to get out of this the sliding you know rock fall that I would ultimately like fall off the edge of this cliff onto the carbon glacier and I had no idea how far that of a fall that would be where where's Emily when this is all happening so she's about 20 or 30 feet behind me just watching all of this happen is she is she, is where she's standing, is there rock moving underneath her feet too, or is it sort of it starts where you are? Yeah, so I was I was basically working out around the ridge. So she's in safety at this point. The the part of the ridge that she's on is not moving. The part of the ridge I was beginning to move out on for our next move is what was falling underneath me. So she's 
on stable rock watching me and boulders and uh, all of the scree start to topple and tumble down the side of Liberty Ridge. And I fall probably about 50 feet. And somewhere in that fall is where my hand was crushed uh, in between two boulders. When you're falling for 50 feet, kind of rolling around in all these boulders and rocks that are moving, did you feel it happened? Do you remember when it happened or was it, were you so shaken up and kind of like lost in this moment that you don't even remember when, when exactly it happened. I definitely remember the ground moving underneath of me. And then as I'm falling, I remember just an intense sharp pain on my hand. And I remember coming to a stop and just thinking to myself, Oh my God, somehow I was able to stop. I don't know what it was, but only fell 50 feet. There's larger boulders rolling past me, more scree sliding around me. And at this point, dirt and scree is like sliding into like my coat. It's into my backpack. It's in my eyes. It's in my mouth. And I just continue to hear the rock slide go on for maybe another minute or two. And I just stay stationary. Were you, and you were wearing your backpack at this point, right? Yeah. I had my full backpack on with ice axes on the outside and uh, I had my harness on as well. So that's good. I mean, I, I, potentially your, the backpack saved you from getting hurt even more. Yeah, I, th- I definitely think like having the backpack helped me like dig into the rock as I was sliding, which probably created some more friction and helped me come to a stop. I like am terrified to think what would happen if I was wearing Gore-Tex layers and uh, was just sliding without a backpack out of my control. I feel like I might have fallen a lot further. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. So, okay, so here, so here you are. You're stopped. You finally stop, and that's got to be a relief. Your left hand is in pain. Do you, do you look at your left hand or you, what happens? Um, the first thing I try to do is stand up and get out of the, the rock fall as it's happening. My initial instinct was very much, I got to get to safety somehow. So I instantly began to, to scramble up the ridge that I just fell down to make it to the, the top of the ridge line where Emily is at safety. As I'm scrambling up, I remember looking at my hand and just seeing pools of blood landing in the dirt and the scree underneath me and turning my hand over on the inside and squeezing it and I was able to see like the tendons move and the blood inside my left ring finger as I squeezed my hand and I just remember thinking to myself okay I can at least bend all my fingers so that's a good sign but we got to figure out what is next and how we're going to be able to take care of this this problem I think at that point I didn't really think I was too terribly injured it wasn't until I got up on the ridge line and showed my hand to Emily who happened to be a doctor who looked at my hand and was like we we need to get get you out of here. You, you like this is you're losing a lot of blood, and if we don't get this thing taken care of, you're probably going to lose your hand. So that's when we made the decision to get out my Garmin inReach and signal SOS to the emergency respond crew. Wow, I'm happy to hear Emily is a doctor that you were with someone who had tons of experience with the medical world. That feels really good and feels safe. Have you ever pressed the SOS button on your Garmin before? I've never pressed SOS before. I've been in two situations where I considered it and ultimately came out uh, feeling that, that I made the right decision. And I've, I've often talked with a lot of other climbers who have pressed SOS before, just about like the philosophy of how do you know it's the right time? You know, you, you don't want to press it if you truly don't need it. And then at the same time, you also don't want to neglect to press it if it could really like, you know, save life or limb. And uh, the rule that I had been following was if it would be an emergency, you know, outside of a climbing situation, if you would go to the emergency room or if you could lose your hand and it happened outside of a climbing situation, you should probably SOS and at least see what 
what your options are. You know, just just increase the likelihood that there is an option that can save you or that you could get help quickly if needed. So you press the SOS button on the right side of the Garmin, and then what happens when you press that? So this was the most astonishing thing that has ever happened to me. Within about 15 minutes, we see a helicopter. I hit the button, we start to down climb, and I remember as we're down climbing, probably 15 minutes after I hit the button, I look at Emily and I'm like, do you hear that? She's like, yeah. And I was like, I think that might be a helicopter. And sure enough, over Curtis Ridge, the ridge line we had bivied on the night before, we see a bright yellow helicopter flying straight towards us. I mean, like unmistakably right towards where we were on Liberty Ridge. And it was just astonishing how quickly that had happened. So at that point, I um, began to signal to the helicopter. I, I remember it's uh, an avalanche rescue course that I had taken a few years prior that the universal sign for yes, we need help is to make a giant Y with your hands and stand up. So I did that for about a minute as the helicopter circled above and I started to get messages on my Garmin asking if I could see the helicopter and if we needed help. So as the helicopter's circling, I'm, I'm trying desperately to respond, which on the Garmin inReach, is, it's pretty hard to actually type out a, a complete sentence on that thing. It's a lot of keystrokes in a very tiny screen. And as I'm typing a message back to the first responder team, the helicopter leaves. We began to assess the situation. Emily dresses my hand. We're very confused. We don't understand why the helicopter had come directly to us, circled us for a minute, and then left and decide that it makes the most sense for us to down climb and try to start getting off the side of Mount Rainier as quickly as possible. So Emily tapes up my hand. We go back to the original entry point onto the ridge where we, we came off the glacier. We had to rappel down about 100 feet and abandon some gear to make it back onto the carbon glacier. At this point, you know, it's been maybe 30 minutes since the, the helicopter had left. And I get a message that says the helicopter is coming again they were unsure if you, you needed help. And so this time the, the helicopter comes back and we, we both stop everything that we're doing and we pull like jackets out of our packs and we're like, like waving them around violently in the air and like almost jumping up and down to really make it clear that we were trying to signal for help. At this point, I remember the helicopter, the, the passenger in the helicopter coming by and pointing over to a section of the glacier that looked a little bit more flat. And so we, we then decided, you know, I think they're telling us that we need to go over here to this flat area of the glacier and we should probably rope up, get our crampons on and start working towards getting over here on the side of the glacier. At this point, my hand is hurting so bad, partially because like I just broke my hand and then also because I'm, I'm not able to wear a glove because my fingers are taped together. And, you know, it's, it's pretty cold out and I'm using my hand to, to like touch the ice and work away across the glacier and it's starting to get pretty cold and I'm, I keep losing blood on the glacier. So we began moving across the glacier towards the helicopter where they had motioned for us to go. As we're moving out that way, the helicopter lands. They signal for us like come over very quickly. We make it over to the helicopter as quickly as we could. We had to navigate across a few crevasses and we, we ultimately made it to the first responders who were on the glacier and the helicopter had pulled away at that point. So dropped off two first responders and had gone back into the air. And the first responders are putting snow pickets and ice screws into the glacier as we approach. We approach these two people. They instantly uh, anchor us into the anchors they had built. 
tell us to take our crampons off and that we're all going to get into the helicopter and get out of there. God, that must um, have been so relieving for you. It was pretty unreal at this point. I'm starting to kind of like have relatively normal thoughts about like, I'm going to lose my hand or I might seriously get frostbite on my hand. You know, it's been probably four hours since the accident and it's like, like starting to turn kind of gray and I'm losing a lot of blood. And then all of a sudden I just feel like, okay, we're actually going to get out of here and I'm going to be able to get help in like, you know, the near future. You know, at that point, as we were, we were coming down, we were kind of unsure if it was going to be, you know, a matter of days before we would be able to make it out of there realistically with my my hand in the situation it was. So it felt very relieving when we, we made it to the anchors and clipped into the anchors. That was kind of the moment where I was like, okay, somebody else is starting to kind of take control of the situation and I can kind of start to relax a little bit. Right. You're no longer in survival mode because you've, you're you're taken care of now. So you can t- take a step back, you can breathe, you can relax just a little bit, even though you're in pain. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do my best to relax, you know, given the circumstance dripping blood on the great glacier and unable to feel my hand and them telling me to take my crampons off, which was very uncomfortable. If you've ever been on like a sheet of solid ice without crampons, it's, it's pretty slippery. And so like trying to relax, trying to be in the, you know, the best spirits I can be, uh, the helicopter comes back really loud. There's a lot of wind. I had never been next to a helicopter in one before. I was really surprised at how powerful the, the wind was as it landed next to us. And the four of us began to to get into the helicopter as quickly as we could. And the first responders strapped all four of our backpacks. Underneath, there was a carriage where they, they strapped all of our gear in. And next thing I know, I'm in the air, and I look out the window, and I, I see Camp Muir, which is, and, you know, there's a ton of mountaineers at Camp Muir. And I realize we're actually going around the east side of the mountain, and we're on our way back to the ranger station. And that was, like, the big moment of, okay. I'm actually going to make it out and I'm actually going to be able to save my hand right now. What time was this? So this was about nine o'clock at night. The sun was just starting to go down, which it, it sets pretty, pretty late here in the Pacific Northwest this time of year. And so we were actually, I think over Camp Muir around nine. And then we landed at the ranger station, maybe nine ten or nine fifteen. Mm-hmm. Are you met by any medics or do you, does Emily take you to a hospital after that? They had arranged for an ambulance to pick us up and it was another two hour ambulance ride to get from Mount Rainier National Park to the nearest hospital. I haven't had painkillers or anything. It's just like me and some duct tape on my hand and kind of hoping for the best. And a medic arrives, we get into the, to the ambulance and we start our two hour drive to the hospital. Oh, did they give you any pain meds in the ambulance? No, I didn't get pain meds uh, oh. for for eight hours until after all of this, after the uh, the initial SOS was pressed. Maybe that's an idea is to put some sort of pain med in your first aid kit too. Yeah, I, I think so. I think uh, there's a lot of things I would do differently looking at the situation holistically afterwards. So you're in the hospital and and then what did the doctors say? Did you did you break your hand? Did you rip some tendons in half? What, what exactly happened to your hand? I have a picture of it here, which we'll post as the thumbnail maybe, um, but what, what do the doctors have to say? The first doctor who looked at my hand was the one who actually came in and, and gave me gave me the stitches, took an x-ray and kind of gave me just like an examination. So I broke my, a knuckle in my, my ring finger, I broke the bone in my ring finger and there was some severe nerve, nerve damage in that finger as well. So they were able to like rebuild my finger, but I, I won't really ever be able to, to bend it fully again. 
and I won't ever be able to feel it ever again. And then the other fingers were just like comparatively less trauma, but still like small groups of stitches across my hand. And then just my hand in general, like all the way up to my elbow is just covered in bruises and scabs and it's just cut up everywhere. I'm hoping that I'm still going to be able to use an ice tool and still do some rock climbing with this hand. I think it's going to be a lifetime of relearning how to use this hand again. And as I've been going through like the past couple of weeks, just trying to, to get used to like small tasks that I used to be able to do easily that I, I really can't do anymore. Yeah, use your hand a lot. Are you left-handed or right-handed? I'm right-handed, so I'm still able to, to write fairly well. And you could type, but you have to like chicken peck. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting pretty good at one-handed typing. <laughs> so, um, so Chris, what are some of the learnings that came out of this incident for you and Emily? Um, so yeah, I think I think the big one was, you know, if you're going to be in a an area that we knew was dangerous, we knew rock slide was potential there. A lot of the beta we had received sort of alluded to like that's something you need to be aware of. I think we let excitement and our, our desire to get to the summit and to, to climb the ridge and to get some good ice climbing in might have made us a little reckless. So I think looking back, I definitely would have taken my time, moved a little more slow, and maybe even roped up while we were on the, the ridge lane. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because if, if, uh, if you and Emily were roped up and she was blaying you out on that to get to the other side of the ridge and you did trigger a rock slide she could have potentially helped arrest your fall almost. Yeah, I definitely think like it would have been more of like a, a small fall and a swing and less of a total fall in the middle of, you know, rocks and boulders tumbling around me. I feel like, um, you know, just having that other anchor point to draw me out of the rock slide would have been helpful. And also it would have been really nice after the slide as I'm looking at clean up this ridge to be on a rope, especially with an injury like that. Um, so potentially being roped up next time, are there any other major learnings that came out of it for you? You know, after talking to the helicopter pilots, we could have done a better job at signaling for help and, you know, communicating with them. I had never signaled for a helicopter before, and so I didn't really know the protocol, but uh, apparently hand signals and making visual contact with the helicopter are assumed um, in, a, in a helicopter rescue. So we kind of uh, felt like we could have done a better job at communicating with them, using hand signals, telling them our plan, and signaling for help the first time. Did you ask them what their best case scenario would be? So we talked to them a little bit about it as we were getting into the ambulance, and they just said, you know, wave vigorously and make sure that it's, you make it over obvious that you are the, the people who need help and that you do in fact need a rescue. And then, you know, every time there is some sort of communication, it's sort of a good idea to respond that you understand what they're trying to say. So in this case, as they pointed to the flat part of the glacier, you know, responding to that by also pointing to the flat part of the glacier would have let them know that we plan on moving there. Got you. And and then replying on the inReach, because you said that they had sent you a text, correct? Uh, so this is where I got, I got kind of confused was as I was talking on my inReach, I was talking to the emergency rescue service who was basically playing man in the middle for the national park who, who came in with a helicopter and rescued us. And I think I was focusing a little too much on texting on my inReach and not focusing enough on 
being in the moment and actually trying to get rescued once the helicopter arrived. Oh, I see. That is a little bit confusing. It's like, what are you, what are you supposed to do exactly? Both at the same time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. As far as my first aid is concerned, I definitely think duct tape was like the most valuable thing we had on our, ourselves at the time. Um, just being able to use fabric, uh, like my buff and build like a, a compression dressing. And like you had mentioned, you know, some sort of painkillers, even if we had some ibuprofen or something just to help me out along the way, I would have been super grateful as I was going through this eight hour process of getting to the hospital. Wow. Okay, great. Well, that sounds like a pretty intense experience for you. Yeah, it's, it's definitely changed a lot. I haven't, this happened three weeks ago, so I haven't really done anything other than like a late day hike since. I'm really excited to get out again and start climbing as soon as I can start to use my hand again. Um, <laughs> you're, you're excited. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to do any physical therapy that you can't just, it can't just heal up and then you get back on the rock. You have to do some physical therapy. I mean, you've injured tendons. You saw the bone at one point. So like, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a specialist in Seattle and, uh, working, uh, at, you know, physical therapy every day. I have to go and we're retrying this restretch out some of my scar tissue just so that I can bend my finger even a little bit. So, I mean, it's, I'll be lucky if I can even get like a very light climb in, you know, this summer, but realistically, I'm probably not going to be climbing again until, till next year. Yeah. You can, you can work your legs out though. Yeah. Definitely going to be hitting the gym and doing some stairs. Kurt, Kurt Hahn said your disability is your opportunity. And I really love that quote because when I injured myself, I'm like, okay, well, what else, what else can I work on? How can my body fix itself. If this part's broken, how can I get this part stronger? Yeah. I definitely think this is a good time too, for me to like, start to you know research more about, and that's how I found on your podcast, but do some research on other accidents and, and, you know, how people navigate emergency situations like this and how, you know, maybe other folks might've done things differently in situations similar to mine. And also I think, uh, I really want to start stepping up my ability to improve myself as a potential volunteer search and rescue member um, after being rescued by someone, you know, go, taking this time to taking some of like the wilderness first responder classes and doing some homework on first aid and, and stepping up my, my climbing resume. And, you know, in that department is something that's now really important to me. It would be nice to be able to go out and, and make a difference. Like the, you know, the two helicopter rescuers that helped Emily and I on the glacier. Yeah. Are you, are, do you have your woofer? Do not have my woofer. I have already signed up for a class, though, in November. So that's going to be something that I'm going to be taking pretty seriously. Well, that is a really incredible course, and you will learn a lot. I'm really excited. And I feel like that's, like like you said earlier, like your disability is your opportunity for me to, to take some of this and, and really start to, to focus on it and, and take it seriously. Chris, when you heal all up, I would love to do Liberty Ridge with you. So you better give me a call and... Let's try and plan a trip and go to Liberty Ridge together to have a successful story. Yeah, I would, I would love that. I really, um, I really want to send this ridge and I really want to, to do it the right way and, you know, get a really great climb in. So yeah, I would love to go with you. Thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor and thank you to the Colorado Ironbound School and Sunto for being contributing sponsors. The Colorado Ironbound School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years. They offer wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range in eight to 81 days in length for ages 12 plus and include backpacking, mountaineering, 
canyoneering, rafting, and rock climbing. Visit www.cobs.org to plan your next adventure. Thank you to Sunto for signing on to sponsor the Sharp Bend podcast. For over 80 years, Sunto has developed the tools to help mountain athletes safely navigate new territory and train for major expeditions. From high-performance compasses to state-of-the-art GPS and altimeter watches, Sunto devices are chosen by leading alpinists worldwide for their durability, accuracy, and ease of use. Sunto watches are handcrafted in Finland, and the word Sunto comes from the Finnish word meaning direction. Learn more at Sunto.com. I'd also like to thank Evan Phillips. He is the Fernline podcast, which is actually my favorite podcast. Y'all should go check it out. But he did me a huge favor and edited this episode. So Evan, thank you so much. Well, that about does this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, play hard and be smart.